I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 84 for January 2020. I'm Duncan, and 1984 is the year of, well, 1984. The George Orwell interpretation, uh, starring John Hurt and Richard Burton, that has the quote she had used to introduce their debut album, If you want a vision of the future, imagine a boot stamping a human face forever, uh, before ripping into like gloriously chunky metal riffs. But I digress. Mm -hmm. 1984 was a great year for my 10-year-old self to see the following movies in the cinema. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Ghostbusters, Gremlins, The Last Starfighter, The Neverending Story, Cannibal Run 2, and legendary flop Supergirl. Plus 1994 had other blockbusters like Beverly Hills Cop, Karate Kid, Police Academy, Romancing the Stone, and The Terminator. Festival favorites, Paris, Texas, Repo Man, The Brother from Another Planet, and The Pope of Greenwich Village. Two epic swan songs for iconic directors, David Lean with A Passage to India, and Sergio Leone with Once Upon a Time in America, Mad Commie Paranoia with Red Dawn, Wacky Comedy Top Secret, and one of my absolute favourites, Milos Forman's brilliant Amadeus. What a year. What a year. It's amazing. For whether it's blockbuster or critical darling film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just incredible. I'm Simon. Simon who? Simon Skywalker. <laughs> a lot of big names out of horror in 84. At the end of uh, 2019, we ran the Nightmare on Elm Street series, which got a start in 84. Uh, the same year that Friday the 13th hit what I think of it as its peak with the final chapter. Uh, spoiler alert, not the final chapter. I think I might have said that before. <laughs> Cult horror got Night of the Comet. Chud. Do you remember Chud? Yeah, I remember Night of the Comet. I remember Oh, that. yeah, Night yeah. of the Comet's great. Yeah, um, Chud. Cannibal humanoid underground dwellers, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the Toxic Avenger and the very arty Neil Jordan werewolf like the Company of Wolves, which um, yeah. kind of haunts me in a weird way to this day. There's so many great images in that film, eh? Yeah, yeah. Like you say, well, we've spoken about that and I always remember that. Um, the the, the that, box art, the eh? art, Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but over in the US, people across the country clutch their pearls and hit the streets to boycott infamous serial killer Santa Flick, Silent Night, Deadly Night. <laughs> Uh, multiple Stephen King adaptations came out, both The Children of the Corn and Firestarter, and Wes Craven returned with the decent cannibal horror flick The Hills of Eyes. Mm. 84 was also the year that Alice Cooper got to make a horror film, mm-hmm. uh, which I've seen, obviously. The Appalling Monster Dog, a film whose title serves as, as its own review. <laughs> um, Alice Cooper sings two songs, but otherwise he is dubbed throughout. Really? Yeah. Oh. So it's one of those Italian um, films where just right. yeah, everyone got dubbed. <laughs> Uh, and finally, Australia got its own nature run amok horror with the stylish bonkers Razorback. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Directed by Russell McCahey the year before he'd hit it big with one of my favourite 80s flicks, Highlander. Uh, McCahey bathes the killer pig film in atmospheric smog and dustful style. It's a gorgeous bit of nonsense. It really is. It's yeah. um, bonkers, obviously, but it looks so good. Yeah. And now here's something new I've decided I'm going to start doing as we work through each year. I had a look at my own DVD collection and discovered I own nine films from 1984. Right. Uh, most horror, of course. But also Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And the culty fantasy comedy Deathstalker. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, probably the oddest film from 84 I own is the Kiwi Splatterfic Death Warmed Up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, although maybe that's not 
as odd as it used to be because it just got re-released with some sort oh, of lovely new packaging. My one's quite an old copy I've had for quite a while. Right. I think I bought from a DVD closing down sale. <laughs> oh, that's great, man. Again, there's so many great films in there. So Wes Craven did Nightmare on Elm Street and Hills Have Eyes in the same year. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, impressive. it's crazy, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I assume Hills of Eyes first because mm. that's um, considerably cheaper looking film. Right, but there must have been earlier in the year. Yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. So look, what have you been watching? Because it's been a little while, eh? It has. Look, I've been watching quite a few. The one I wanted to talk about today is Destroyer. Uh, director Karen Kusama paints with a florid brush, scorching the film in a dusty red haze that has space only for its central star. Destroyer gives Nicole Kidman a chance to embrace a role that is usually the reserve of men. Hard drinking, regretful, compromise, alienating those that love her. Kidman plays a cop dealing with her past indiscretions whilst undercover. Violence is around every corner and awaits every character. Uh, look, you've seen this story before, but probably never from a woman's perspective, and certainly not presented with the ferocity of Kidman. Stripped of glamour, possessing a steely focus beyond the jaded eyes. There's no way this woman would put up with anything her character in Big Little Lies does. In fact, she'd be the one dishing it out, more than likely. But Kusama deserves plaudits for the tension she creates from two bank robberies. One set in the past is like slow-motion horror. The one in the present, like fast-cut explosion. And uh, she also plays a Caius track, which is the greatest stoner rock band of all time, on the soundtrack at like a desert drug party with all these gangsters, which may be a little too literal for those familiar with the band. You're just like, yeah, that's kind of what I imagine Josh Holm does. But it really got me on board swiftly. Oh, it's just like, oh, this is cool. Um, but I recommend checking this one out. Kidman's really good in it. Um, it's got some really interesting uh, cinematography. And uh, yeah, it definitely holds your attention. You're right. I, sh- I certainly remember when the trailer for this came out. Mm. And then the film came out, and everyone was going, oh, Kidman for the Oscar. Kidman for the yeah. It was all that talk. And it died away. Yeah. And I don't know why. It was probably because of the timing of the release, essentially. But yeah. that talk of her being an Oscar nominee just poof, vanished. Yeah, it? yeah. It was a bit of a commercial flop, I think, as well. I think right. it only raked in, like, half its budget. And its budget was pretty modest to begin with. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, just kind of died. Probably because, like I say, the story you've seen a million times. If this was a guy story, this would just be, you know what I mean? Yeah, it'd be like the Punisher or something. It'd be like John Bernthal would be in this, you know, just yeah. walking around like, but cracking skulls. Um, yeah, you know, Jeremy Renner or someone like that, some kind of mid-table kind of guy. Yeah, um, yeah. But but seeing as it's Kidman and she she's really good in it. Yeah, know? yeah. Um, so yeah, I recommend just having a sneaky. Peek. Oh great! Oh, well, let's push this one uh, back up my list a little bit. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, what about you? What have you been watching? Uh, well, obviously quite a bit as well. But the film I'm going to single out here is Bad Boys for Life. <laughs> So surprisingly, up until this year, I'd never seen a bad boy film. Well, well done. Yeah. Uh, shocking, eh? But this self-imposed exile from the world of Will Smith and Martin Lawrence shooting guns and looking cool. Mm. I don't know. Not so much in this film, but coolish, I guess. Came to an end with Bad Boys for Life. Thanks to, of course, the Baron Devon. Right. Uh, now, I might not have seen a bad boy before, but I get the gist, you know? <laughs> uh, comic banter, gunfights, macho exchanges, hero shots from a low angle and slow-mo shot by Michael Bay. A general orange and teal colour palette throughout. Mm-hmm. That's all more or less here, but I get the sense that the style is a little kind of half-delivered upon. Mostly the action is kind of flat in your normal pedestrian unit action comedy mm-hmm. way. You know when comedy films do action, yeah. and there's kind of that crossover, and the action's never particularly enjoyable because, yeah. it, you know... They're not really kind of, not really cut out for it. Yeah, it's not really what it's about. Mm. It dips into Bayism occasionally, and once in a while delivers a really nice painterly shot. But directors Adil El Abi and Bilal Fala seem to struggle to make their own film while making a film that needs to look like a Michael Bay flick. You know, mm. it's this real tension that I don't think gets resolved. The plot has Smith's character crippled in a drive-by shooting. Spoiler alert, folks. 
the uh, crippling does not last. <laughs> and Lawrence's character retiring after he makes a promise to never fire a gun again. Spoiler alert, folks. The pacifism does not last. <laughs> uh, naturally, there's a where to old for the shit theme with the leads juxtaposed with a sexy group of modern high-tech cops who are taught that ultimately they need old-school badasses like Will Smith and Lawrence to get the job done. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you're familiar with that thematic yeah. uh, or yeah. seen that trope before. My favourite shot might have been Lawrence retired, and Lawrence has got big, by the way. Yeah, like he, I noticed he that. doesn't look like he should be doing this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, retired, kicking back on his lazy boy. Shot in that swirling, low-angle bass style. That struck me as pretty funny. I mean, that's a funny yeah. concept. Um, there was also a line that had both the Baron and I literally LOLing in the cinema. Right. Um, I won't reveal it to you. It was pretty good. But this is mostly a forgettable film. Mm-hmm. Um, not really funny enough. Not really exciting or visually interesting enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has the nerve, which staggered me, to finish with a sting to set up another sequel. <laughs> which, I mean, truly no one wants. You know, did that thing where the title card hits at the end and right. then it fades to black and comes back up and he's like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> um, the poster tagline was Ride Together, Die Together. And I was disappointed they didn't die together, <laughs> as I'd been promised. You're hoping you're going to let yeah, Thelma Louise it over Yeah, there. man, these guys are going to die. <laughs> I've never seen them before, but they're going to die. Um, they didn't. Very annoying. Uh, also, the film never addresses Will Smith's obscene wealth. Um, or his characteristic scene was well. Mm-hmm. He has a new Porsche, flash clothes, and a penthouse apartment refused to die for. Um, I don't want to have to watch the previous film, so if there's any of our viewers out there who you know can let me know, did he have a generous inheritance or did he win a lottery? I think they do actually explain that. I've had to promote Bad Boys before. Oh, okay. um, I've had to get a promo for it, and I think they do explain it. I think he is from a Trust Fund Baby or something. Oh, okay. So yeah. there actually is. Yeah. Like, it's not one of those cases where they're just like, eh, Yeah, I think know. someone comments on it going, man, how can you afford this on a cop? Yeah, yeah. It's like a lethal weapon, you know, when, um, yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. For, for my first Bad Boy film, I probably picked the wrong one, eh? Yeah, you must be lost. You must be so confused about oh, the intricate yeah. details. What's going on? Who are these guys? What do they do for a living? Um, you know, how do they how do they get on? They seem so different. <laughs> One of them's like a family guy, and the others, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Wacky. I don't even know if I've seen the second one. I think it must have because I know in the second one they do they rip off um ironically enough, police story, the Jackie Chan one. You know yes. when they drive the Yeah, uh, unbelievable, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they drive the vans through the shanty town on yeah. the hill. They, they ripped that off exactly. Yeah, and that's, that's shocking. I yeah. mean, you know. And it's just because it's just standout in, uh, in police stories. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I remember that. That happens in the second one. Yeah, I was aware of that. And mm. I remember seeing that and thinking, oh, gosh, that's shameless, actually. Yeah. 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 But uh, this one without Michael Bay, I mean, you know. Yeah. You ne- never thought you'd say it, but hey, man, maybe you need Michael Bay making this y- film. You actually do, I think, <laughs> you know, because otherwise, um, what are you doing? I mean, you know, he's almost a bigger star of that franchise, I would imagine. Yeah as the stars are, because his mm. style is so what you think of. Yeah. Like, I think of those guys stepping out of a car, the camera's sp- swirling around them, all of that stuff yeah. is how I see this film. Yeah. Oh, so perfectly done from Hot Fuzz, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Watch Hot Fuzz instead, I guess, is yeah. the review. With awards season upon us, we thought we'd get in first and do the spoiler alert awards. Yeah, it's our chance to take a glance in the old cinematic rearview mirror and maybe hand in an award or two about what we thought of 2019. Uh, so do you want to kick it off? Yeah, well, I'm going to go straight out of the gate. I'm going to go hard. <sighs> film of the year. And uh, my film of the year, probably no surprise, been singing its praises all last year, is Parasite. And right. 
In its dying months, 2019 gave us one of the decade's best films, and Bong Joon-ho delivered what I think will be considered his masterpiece. Gripping from its opening scene, inventive, tense, and funny, Parasite provides a modern-day parable on class warfare. And when it comes to choosing sides, the film expertly manipulates the audience's sympathies. The ensemble cast is uniformly excellent, led by Jun Ho's stalwart actor, Kang Ho Song. It offers Cho Yong Jong a chance to do a comedic role in the vein of like a Todd Salon's character. You know, she's the mother. Mm. Uh, just gloriously unaware of her own privilege. Mm. And Lee Jung Yun as the usurped housekeeper. It gives her like the scope to move from sweetness to desperation to vengeance. Mm. Uh, and this is just some of the, act- I mean, all of the actors are so good yeah, in this. Yeah. And, and just everything, even down to the damn poster, everything about Parasite is designed to perfection. Uh, it's, I thought it was an instant classic that you, I just wanted to see as soon as the credits rolled. Yeah. It was just yeah. Look, it's, it's marvelous. Um, I'm now, since you've gone straight into with yeah. film of the year, I'm going to do my film of the year last no. now. Okay. So like you have to wait to the end of this podcast to see Great. if Duncan and I have any uh, point of comparisons okay. or whether I've chosen um, Last Blood. Yeah. Um, you know, as my favorite. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so I'm going to start with Trailer of the Year. Okay. It's a tough call for the Trailer of the Year award for me. Uh, on the one hand, Wonder Woman 84 came roaring out with a sublimely well edited promo cut to the sounds of a driving sometimes orchestral version of New Order's Blue Monday, setting a retro epic tone that's hard to beat. It really is. It's, I've watched that trailer over and over again, sort of picking apart its little moments, it, marvelling at the music edits. It's a wonderful bit of work that reminds me of that other great DC promo for Suicide Squad. I don't know when you... Do you remember when you seen yeah. that? And it just felt like uh, th- there was a new shift. You know what yeah. I mean? Like uh, I've heard promo makers talk about when the Texas Chainsaw Massacre promo came out, mm-hmm. the, the, re- the remake, and it just set this like, oh, this is the new... And then, of course, the Inception trailer and, yeah. you know, those moments. And, and I can remember seeing Suicide Squad and thinking, oh, this is the new bar, you know. Right. And, and this rem- this isn't the new bar, but it reminds me very much in that tone. It's a right. high-quality trailer, beautiful graphics too. Great. Yes, beautifully done. But while Wonder Woman 84 is an example of superb craftsmanship, the trailer for St. Maud is just a demonstration of peak creepiness from, who else? A24. <laughs> what a studio. A bit of body horror, a bit of The Exorcist, a sprinkling of psychological horror. And again, a wonderful bit of sound design and a perfect track. Uh, Billy Eilish's uh, "All the Good Girls Go to Hell." Right. Uh, that's just this. Pro- this trailer is just catnip to Simon A. <laughs> um, so both those trailers and can't pick. Yeah. Both doing different things. Both beautifully crafted bits of work. And bonus points for the John Wick three trailer, mostly for using Frank Sinatra crooning "Impossible Dream," which was a really inspired choice, I think, yeah. because it's not an action movie song for an action movie trailer. That's right. But it just ah, oh, it's got an epic sort of you know, yeah. grandeur to it, which yeah. works well with, you know, um, Keanu Reeves just busting heads. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. On horseback. Yeah. Oh, excellent, yeah. Look, uh, that ties in nicely with my best and worst trailer. Oh. And for me, they're actually the same film. Oh, how is this possible? Um, It's for Brightburn. Oh, so yeah, 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 yeah. The way it hinted with visual cues, we know so well like the waving cornfields, the red flags on the letterboxes, mm. the barn with a red glow, farmers cradling a miracle child. As he grows, he questions his heritage, discovers his powers, and then things are not quite right. It's so tantalizing sets up the idea, what if Superman was not born benevolent? But also, everything worth discovering in that film is given away in that trailer. Right. And it also annoyingly refers to James Gunn as... The visionary director. I hate the visionary director. Which I think is slightly overstating his attributes. 
what was quite funny was I saw an interview with uh, Taika Waititi recently and he was talking about, oh, yeah, he was jokingly saying, oh, yeah, I really want a um, visionary director like on my next thing because I've seen a lot of people talk doing yeah, that yeah, and yeah. I went, oh, I wonder if that's a bit of a slam against James Gunn because I just went... Well, it could be. It's a slam against trailers. Really. Exactly. But I was just like, visionary? Really? Yeah. He Guardians of the Galaxy and now he's a visionary? Yeah. I mean, come on. Well, he did slow though. I mean, come on. <laughs> you no, know, I know what you mean. Yeah, like he's di- Kubrick or something. Yeah, visionary <laughs> director is always such a such a big yeah. pull eye. When I saw that, I went, oh, they're doing the, we're doing Superman again? They're doing another origin story? Yeah. Because I literally saw that. I didn't even know it was necessarily Brightburn. I think right. I saw the trailer at the movies maybe. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I didn't look like, I didn't look it up on YouTube go, oh, Brightburn trailer. Yeah, yeah. I was at the movies going, oh, okay. So they're doing, they're doing the story of Superman again. Oh, okay. And I'd see yeah. that. Um, and then I was just like, wow, it's great. And then I watched the film and I went, oh, everything was in that trailer. Yeah, it's a fantastic idea, isn't it? Yeah. 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 But the conceit is it, really, you know. Totally. So, yeah, the conceit yeah. is everything. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, so it's kind of best and worst trailer for me. All best and worst trailer. All yeah. in the same trailer. That's amazing. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> all right. Here's another one, a uh, tough one for me. Uh, actor of the Year. Right. All right. So, having seen Florence Pugh knock it out of the park in Little Women just this mm-hmm. week and Midsommar, which mm-hmm. I will also watch this month. Uh, I'm tempted to name her my favourite actor of 2019. She was also in Fighting with the Family, which we watched way That's back right. at the beginning of this year. Yeah, we did too. Um, and uh, Little Drummer Girl, uh, which is a TV series we had on um, TV and So I've seen her in like three films and a TV series, and she was really good in all of them. Right, yeah. Um, so I'm tempted to name her my favourite actor of 2019. But I cannot look past, as the Academy voters have shamefully done, Lupita Nyong'o. Who was once again an acting force of nature, this time in Jordan Peele's Us. Uh, her performance here is a physical and psychological tour de force, as she plays two distinct characters with different gaits, uh, looks, and memorably, terrifyingly different voices. Yeah. Uh, one character fearful, the other fearsome. She's one of the most vivid, unnerving villains you'll ever see, and a genuinely sympathetic protagonist. Mm. Warm, brave, someone you want to see survive. So you're getting two great performances in one film. I mean, it's an extraordinary work. It is. And I just, you know, I was looking at the trailer again today and her look as Red, you know, the the unnerving villain, I guess, Mm. of the film is incredible. Yeah. So striking. And that voice is incredible. It's apparently, though, not a performance worthy of an Oscar nomination, which vexes me no end. I mean, what the hell, people? Yeah, yeah, I, I didn't end up completing this. Was actually going to be my um, biggest snub of the year. Was oh. going to be uh, just generally us right across the board because I, oh, I well, and in particular Lapita. Oh, if, if there was only one award for that film, if they only had room in their little yeah. Oscar-worthy hearts for one award, it should have been her. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a couple of months ago, I was talking about why isn't she not working as much as she deserves mm. to be working? Like I need to see this woman in lots of films. I mean, like I said, Florence Pugh's great. That's mm. fantastic. But I've seen her in two films. This month, three films that came out this year, in the last year, and a TV series. Yeah. I mean, she is working at a clip. Yeah. I mean, everyone wants her in a film. Yeah. Uh, why not Lupita? Well, Lupita Nyong'o, I mean, you saw Rise of Skywalker, she's in that. Ugh. <laughs> Moving on. I, just, I can't even respond to that. Uh, <laughs> didn't take my bait. Hey, um, look, I'm going to go for moving to performance of the year, and I, I, I do agree with you on uh, Lupita Nyong'o. She was fantastic in that. Uh, my one is going for, um, which is probably comes as no surprise, I raved about him, and everyone is, was Joaquin Phoenix in Joker. And while there has been much conjecture about the achievement of Joker and, say, like, 
Todd Phillips is the director. One area of almost undeniable success is the lead actor's performance, which I said at the time seemed beyond the reach of many actors working today. Uh, it is a towering and singular on-screen presentation of a fractured mind pushed through the prism of a cartoon villain. Phoenix seems like a quirky, distractingly odd personality in real life, and he funnels all his natural persona into a career-defining role. Yet here is a man whose career has ex- included excelling in Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master and Inherent Vice, and also in I Was Never Really Here, and a raft of other films. He gets to have his cake and eat it too with Joker by doing a superhero film without doing a superhero film. Uh, while the film hammers home its victimization of the lead character, Phoenix manages to build to a climax that feels like a release the tears streaming down his face and his maniacal grin, the sadness and the exhaustion in his eyes as he pleads and preaches at the same time to a cackling studio audience. It is a surreal scene, fraught with tension. Aphenius' explosion falls into a kind of melancholy. Uh, There is nowhere to look on the screen and not see the performance of the year. Uh, I just thought he was fantastic in this, and, you know, it is that kind of undeniable performance that almost transcends the film it's in. Yeah, I think it does because for me, I mean, we haven't talked about it in great depth, but I don't think I love the Joker quite. Yeah, I didn't like it as much as you did. I feel. Yeah, but there's no denying the performance. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, look, I mean, I I think that there's, I think Joker has narratively, I think at the the time it has problems. It 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 hammers home its point. It's quite repetitive, but he was fantastic. Yeah, and agreed. He is great. I could have just kept watching him forever. You know, he was great. Yeah, totally, absolutely. Now it's time for my dullest film of the year award. Right. Yep. By here, this award goes to a film that should never, ever be considered dull. That should be a riot, a blast, or at the very least, a guilty good time. And that film is Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Uh, A big, saggy, far too long disappointment whose overblown stabs at spectacle just become a tiresome slog through loud, hectic, meaningless set pieces. No one seems to be in any real danger from the titanic kaiju clobbering each other, and the action is so repetitive that my mind frequently detached itself from the viewing experience and contemplated things like, why can Gadira chase down a supersonic jet, and yet it takes him an age to catch up with the Humvee? <laughs> I mean, that, Or why can Godzilla burst through Antarctic ice, like from under it, to fight Gadira, and yet that ice then supports both their weight as they clobber each other? Mm-hmm. That's supposed to make any sense. <laughs> it's mind-boggling that the Godzilla film should be this dull. It really is. I like the Gareth Edwards Godzilla, and I think, you know, I might be relatively alone in that, but this sequel is an absolute bore, and I'm pretty sure it's killed off any interest in more Godzilla flicks. Mm. Ah, what's that you say? Godzilla vs. King Kong is due this year? (laughs) Man. Yeah, man. And this film was so dull, and so long, too, you know? Yeah, I remember you talking about it at the time. Um, Yeah, it sounded it. Yeah, it's crushingly boring. That leads me into... My disappointment of the year. Oh, that was, does that does seem fair. Yes. Yeah, which it was Glass. Ah. Uh, Split was among my favourite films of 2017. So when Glass was announced, I was all in. Shyamalan has a rocky record, but two of his highlights happened to be connected: Unbreakable and Split. Glass, however, was a disappointing squib. The film's budgetary constraints, visible in its cheap finale, which also betrays the director's lack of ambition in filming action. It's staged and lit, like a fight in the schoolyard from Grange Hill. Mm. Uh, the film retains some of its predecessors' highlights, namely James McAvoy's multiple performances and Jackson's title villain. But Shyamalan can't wrestle an emotion out of Bruce Willis, and the film gets bogged down in a central hour that is just like slow-acting poison to the narrative. But it's really that third act that assures us that Shyamalan leaves his worst to last, 
both in terms of the climax of this film, but also the final film and otherwise what I thought was an excellent trilogy. All right. Well, that also leads me to the biggest disappointment of the year award. Mm -hmm. So, after a solid return to form with The Visit and then the decent enough split, (laughs) which teased the universe included Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson's characters, Shyamalan seemed once again a cinematic force to be reckoned with. (laughs) And the trailer for Glass, when it dropped, seemed a mouth-watering idea, the return of the villain and hero of Unbreakable, and James McAvoy's memorable creation from Split, all crashing heads in Shyamalan's take on the world of superheroes. But boy, like my co-host, was I to be disappointed. Because apart from McAvoy once again bringing the fireworks, this film is a bust. It's all narrative wheel spinning until a bunch of mediocre third act twists. It's a film that doesn't seem to know why it exists in the first place. It does nothing to the David Dunn character, reintroduces the Glass character after fully half the film is over, and would be a complete waste of time without McAvoy. Mm. The only suspense, or at least attempted suspense, in the film comes from or should come from the idea that maybe these characters aren't superheroes at all, but just deluded individuals whose feats can be explained away scientifically. But that's a complete damn squib an idea, because we all know as an audience members that these are real powers. Heck, we started the film with McAvoy scaling a ceiling like a spider, so we'll never believe this theme. I mean, it carries no weight for us, and it's the crux of about half the film. Yeah. Uh, what a waste, man. Such a waste, especially when you spend the whole time of Unbreakable convincing your lead character that he is special you know yeah, what I mean yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the whole point this whole premise of the first film yeah. so then to turn around and go actually no it's just like man but also as viewers we don't believe it no exactly. we never for a second believe that no Yeah, that's right yeah Ugh. Um, cool the um, model of restraint award for me goes to Melissa McCarthy and can you ever forgive me mm. Uh, there's a long history of comedic actors excelling at dramatic roles, be it Jim Carrey, Peter Sellers, hell, even Adam Sandler has managed moments. But there's something most authentic when, for me when Melissa McCarthy takes on a straight role. Between 2014's St. Vincent and this film, McCarthy may in fact steal the show from her comedic co-stars through her restraint. Uh, in the first one, Bill Murray, and in this one, Richard E. Grant. Can You Ever Forgive Me doesn't offer McCarthy a lot of dialogue to weave her magic. Instead, her buttoned-up misanthropy is communicated to us through her aversion to human interaction. McCarthy transmits frustration and impatience in her body language, how she stands, how she walks, how long she waits before she talks. It's a rich performance that elevated an interesting story into a terrific character study for me. Mm. I really liked her in this. Yeah, yeah, I like them both. Yeah, um, I mean, I like them both, but I think that his was a showy role and it's Richie Grant doing yeah, his Richie yeah. Grant charm kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Whereas hers was like stripping everything back about her and still delivering... Something really Yeah, his, his, his role is built for him. Yeah, and, yeah, that's right. But you're right, she's fantastic in this. All right, the, uh, a surprise to be sure, but a welcome one award for me. Alligator Storm Horror Flick Crawl <laughs> was as dumb as a bag of hammers. Super cheap, but to my shock, also a super fun time in the cinema. I love the fact that it's all-American nature run mock horror, uh, shot by Frenchman in Siberia, um, <laughs> which is crazy. It turned out to be such a great, gooey thriller. Re- reviews were good, box office was decent, and even admittedly notoriously untrustworthy film critic Quentin Tarantino called it the film of the year. <laughs> I, I love, I love her, mate. Eh? I mean, that's great. Listeners, Crawl was not the film of the year. That's just that's silliness. It really is. But it was a great antidote to the mega budget blockbusters that clog up the multiplexes. It delivered great tension out of what amounts to a single location. Played its wild premise with a straight bat, which still allowed room for amusing mayhem, and didn't overstate its welcome. Like I've said many times before, we're in a golden age of horror, but it's nice to be able to enjoy a schlocky creature feature amongst all the art horror we're being treated to. 
Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this one turning up on Sky so I can kick back and watch it. That's the that's where you'll watch it. That's, 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 that's perfect. <laughs> that's great. I mean, it's nice to see in the cinema. Yeah. Um, and I can remember, I think I said to you at the time, there's a scene where um, Barry Pepper's having to re-break his leg with a spanner <laughs> and the guy next to me just wincing and gripping a seat and trying not to look. Ah, that's amazing. I love that stuff. That's what horror film is all about, eh? Totally. But it would be a really good one to watch on Sky as well. Yeah, cool. Well, speaking of just kicking back and watching films, uh, my best long-haul flight movie goes to Escape Room. Uh, being stuck in an aeroplane can be tough. Uh, I find it's a good time to catch up with all the superhero films, lukewarm comedies and borderline trash I've missed out on the previous year. In fact, sometimes I'll kind of intentionally avoid a film I know when I know I have a global journey coming up. Uh, again, yeah, it might yeah. turn up on Sky or someone might lend it to me or whatever. I'm like, hey, and I'm kind of planning to, I've got a 13-hour flight <laughs> followed by another like 12-hour flight. So maybe I'll just save it for that. But one that came out of left field that I wasn't saving up was Escape Room, perhaps the perfect film for a flight. Claustrophobic, tense, uncomfortable, stuck in a confined space with people you don't know. And then there's the film, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is the same. Uh Plus some great deaths, you know. Escape Room is like Saw without the gore. Reminiscent of the 90s cult hit Cube. The film pits a bunch of strangers into an environment which has one way out and many ways to kill them. Escape Room was a kind of silly yet engaging thriller that eats up 90 minutes before you've finished your in-flight meal. You know, I just barely didn't even notice. Mm. It was, you know, I, I watched Avengers uh, Endgame on the plane. Right. And I definitely looked at my watch a couple of times going, Sure. Whoa. Um, long. Yeah, but you know, like Escape Room, oh, I just flew by. That, that cube comparison makes me want to see it. Yeah, I have a soft spot for cube. It's not as inventive as that. Yeah, you know, on a really small budget, but uh, for, considering it did what what it, what it kind of came to expect. Cool. And uh, yeah, I can recommend it's got some good moments in it. Nice. All right, action scene of the year award time for me. Hands down, this award goes to John Wick Three for a fight that happens to take place in a knife shop. Uh, we reviewed Parabellum in our run in the series episode where we watched all three of the Wicks. And while this one was my least favourite, it's still a pretty great watch. After all, what big screen cinematic offering in 2019 can deliver action this kinetic and this creative? Um, none, as it turns mm. out. It's an action sequence that has it all. Brutal, goofy black humour, inventiveness, great choreography, and fine action performances. Knives are stabbed into the top of people's heads and whipped out like they're gunshots. It's kind of amazing to watch. I've said it before, but there's something odd and special about Keanu Reeves, the action actor. His rangy, dorky athleticism is one of a kind. He has a smooth, liquid style that could be gangly, but also comes across as brutal. Um, also, a guy gets stabbed through his eye, like slowly too, not at speed. It's just like yeah. pushed through. Um, there are other great action sequences in John Wick 3. There's a fight on horseback. The library fight, which I thought was great. Oh, yeah. And the extended finale in a room made of glass. But I don't think anything really matched the inspired mayhem of the knife fight. I mean, that was the peak. Oh, the knife fight was so glorious, especially after that library fight. The library fight was like the entree, and that, that was yeah. just so good. Yeah. yeah, the knife fight, I was just kind of, you know, giddy with excitement. And, you know, like hallway fights, you know, you've got <clears throat> old boy, you've got yeah, the raid. That limited space. Uh, yeah. The, yeah, yeah. You've got the raid, <clears throat> and now you've got John Wick 3. Mm. Oh, it's just oh, so good. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I actually um, did start writing this, and I was like, I bet Simon's going to talk about John Wick 3, and he's going to talk about that fight, and I was right. <laughs> Couldn't resist. Yeah. Cool. So duo of the year for me goes to Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson, A Marriage Story. Uh, the best couple are a couple falling apart. Noah Baumbach's painfully insightful screenplay gives Johansson and Driver ample opportunity to ride the waves of separation. 
We're sold a clever dummy in the first five minutes when they both explain what they admire and love about each other. Divorce from her kind of implacable Black Widow personality, Johansson seems to relish the chance at sinking her teeth into a character and confrontations that are real and raw. It looks like the kind of acting that must be really addictive, and Driver's enigmatic persona makes him the perfect foil. By smart and naively poking holes in the paper-thin wall of his disintegrating relationship, Driver and Johansson spark in every scene, and they force you to empathise with both and then burn with frustration at their individual pettiness and stubbornness. It feels like a significant film for both of these actors. As right. Well. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen this one yet, so I've really got to. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's worth watching. And, um, yeah, it's kind of, it feels like the um, kind of arrival at, you know, somewhere where you thought both these actors were going to, especially Adam Driver, you're like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's fascinating, eh? Oh, he is, yeah, yeah. yeah. Have you ever seen him interviewed? He's just like, yeah. He's just such a, uh, he's such an enigmatic and kind of uh, magnetic kind of character. Yeah, and I love that, like you say, the enigmaticness. Mm. Bit. But I love that about him because it's so rare nowadays. It's like yeah. um, we're living in this kind of oversharing age where, mm. you know, every time a film comes out, somebody's got to do some crazy challenge on YouTube or, yeah. you know. And even when he's doing SNL, I don't feel like we're getting a sense of who he is as a human. That's right. Which yeah. is fantastic. You know, yeah. it's old school kind of, you know, uh, a performer, but detached from having yeah. to know who he is as a human. And I love that about him. Yeah, you know? that's right. And I also think, um, even though I haven't seen this, I have seen Jojo Rabbit. And it reminded me watching that. It's like, oh, Scarlett Johansson is um, maybe underrated. Yeah. And I think underrated because I've got so used to seeing her as a superhero. Yeah, that's and right. And nothing else that I've forgotten that she's a really powerful actress. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Not great. All right, so now it's time for me for Worst Film of the Year. Uh, as I said, Godzilla King of the Monsters won the coveted Dullest Film of the Year Award <laughs> by a hair. But that award could nearly have gone to the film I'm picking as my worst film of 2019, Rambo Last Blood. Yeah. So by the, so by the numbers that you can practically write the synopsis based on a 30-second teaser trailer, Last Blood plods its way through its grim plot. It's 73-year-old star, too old to deliver an effective action scene. Now just emerging from the shadows like a shorter, bulkier Jason Voorhees to deliver gory trauma that's so poorly shot that there isn't even a guilty thrill to watching bad guys dispatched in Rambo's kill cave. Uh, this is a twistless, suspenseless, surpriseless descent into bloody revenge. The villains are naturally enough Mexicans. Gangsters crossing the border, border from a country depicted as every bit as nasty and deadly. It's a ridiculous cave system Rambo's built all over his ranch. So we can add reactionary nonsense to this film's crimes. Um, David Morrell, the creator of the character, said that he left the theatre feeling degraded and dehumanised. And why wouldn't he? This was a horrible film, handily the worst of the franchise, and easily my worst film of 2019. Yeah, well, look, I wrote worst film and I was kind of the same. I was like, I oh, know Simon's going to do this as well. So, <laughs> look, you know... It, Pile on. Mine's Rambo Last Blood as well. Oh. And, you know, yeah, unsurprisingly, we had a field day during our in-depth review of Last Blood, uh, in a series defined by excess and outlandishness, it is even tough to watch a nasty, dimly lit dirge. From worldview to xenophobia to philosophy, Last Blood is quite hateful. Mm. Uh, but even as an action film doesn't achieve its goals, as you mentioned, a Rambo Last Blood finale isn't so much an orgy of violence as a tantric endurance, uh, instead leaving us to watch Stallone race around tunnels 
and I wrote this down as well, with Jason Voorhean levels of murderous efficiency yeah. <laughs> uh, until he literally rips a dude's heart out. Yeah. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Um, and as you say, it's clearly the worst of the franchise. And that franchise includes Rambo 3 and Rambo 4. Yeah, for so sure. So that is slamming. Yeah. If you've seen Rambo 3 or 4 and this is worse, like definitively worse. Oh, it's yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's <laughs> not even a close thing. Yeah. Those films so. are much better. <laughs> yeah. So much better. Yeah. No, it's, it's really shameful, but like, like I, I think when we did review it, I first started out doing a review where I didn't even talk about its xenophobia, its hatefulness, because yeah. I thought you can easily dismiss this film based on just its quality yeah. of filmmaking. That's right. It's lack of suspense. Yeah. It's, it's the way it's shot, the dullness of it. Yeah. You know, um, you don't even have to get over. Yeah. And, and I think that taps into Rambo 4, which I did see the cinema and I remember kind of giggling at. And it is just as offensive in a lot of ways mm. as this is, but there's something nasty and joyless about this one. Yeah. Um, that I kind of found quite hard to, to plow through, really. It's a weird thing talking about the Rambo films because I will have a guilty pleasure of watching, you know, Rambo 2 or something, you know. 2 is an effective action film. Yeah, that's you right. Know, no yeah. matter what anyone says about that film, and yeah. there's a lot you can say about <laughs> yeah, it, it's right. an effective action film, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it, it moves at pace too, yeah. eh, that film. Eh? Once it, it gets going, it rips along. Yeah. Um, you know, I watched, um, I don't know if you've seen the new, uh, the latest Terminator no, I haven't. No, I haven't no. watched any of the late last couple of terms. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about it in great deal, but in great deal thing. But I watched it recently, and that has a way more sympathetic treatment of the Mexico American border. Right. I mean, staggeringly so because the film I'd watched beforehand was uh, Bad Boys for Life. Yeah. Whose villains are all Mexicans? Right. Yeah, brutish Mexicans crossing the border to you know kill Americans. So uh, I ended up at least for the first half of uh, the new Terminator feeling quite warm feelings towards <laughs> it for not being so mean and hateful and xenophobic. Oh, yeah. um, the second half of the film took away a lot of those good feelings, um, <laughs> but we'll get to that. <laughs> All right, Duncan started with his best film of 2019, and I'm going to finish with best film of 2019. Look, I knew when I saw Parasite that it would be a tough film to beat in 2019, and for me it hasn't been topped. Bong Joon-ho's, I don't know, comedy thriller, I think that's what Wikipedia called it. Uh, it, it so much more than that. Um, is a master, does a masterful job of resting the viewers' loyalties in a way that few films manage. We meet the Kim family racing around trying to fight for cell phone coverage, which is hilarious and unexpected to me. And we like them immediately. They're funny and desperate to get by. We like them even as they start to book the obscenely rich Park family who feel like they deserve it. But as their cons get darker, our loyalties are tested. But that's just the start of the way Parasite twists and turns, casting a light on the social inequalities of the world of these families. Parasite is a lot funnier than I expected too, though I expect darkness. Mm. Um, it's Hitchcocky in its twists and turns, but it's also a devastating story of class warfare and privilege. A comedy to my shock, and it was. I didn't expect it to be this funny. And a very, very beautiful film to look at as well. Uh, as my colleague said, it's a masterpiece and my favourite film of 2019. Hey, can't argue with that, man. Nah, it's fantastic. So that's the spoiler alert awards. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, and now I think we need to talk about the Academy Awards. Yeah, they're kind of the the poor cousin to the spoiler alert. Yeah, the, that's the, right. The poor man's awards. The poor man's awards, but they're coming up. They're coming yeah, up. Yeah, we might as well talk about it. So we thought we'd actually give it you our predictions. Yeah, we'll just go for the main categories, right? Absolutely. Cool. Um, look, I'll kick it off. Yeah. With uh, best actor. Right. And I think the stars here are aligning for Joaquin Phoenix. Yep. 
I think his gold globe win gives him the that horrible word momentum mm-hmm. as well. But uh, yeah, I think this is his one to win. Yeah, um, I think so too. Uh, he would be uh, the one that I want to win, uh, along with Adam Driver actually in Marriage Story. Right. Uh, I, I looked. I'll put this out straight away. I think uh, the Golden Globes taught us exactly what's going to happen to anything Netflix puts up, which is almost universal damnation. <laughs> uh, there will be some exceptions. But they'll be right. minor categories, and they won't be in uh, maybe some of the acting. But the, you certainly won't see it. any Netflix stuff win best okay. film. Yeah. Uh, so the next one is best actress, mm-hmm. which I will say will go to Renee Zellweger for Judy. Yeah. Look, um, Shusha Ronan is twenty five, and this is her fourth nomination. It's uh, remarkable, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, eh? <laughs> uh, it's pretty amazing. Um, I think Lupita Nyong'o should be winning here, but yeah. she's not nominated. So my pick is Renee Zellweger. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my one's here as well. And another one, I like I say, I think Johansson's nominated for Marriage Story. So yeah. I, I think they're a, um, yeah, a great combination. So, yeah. Okay, so Best Supporting Actor. And I wish, I wish this was Joe Pesci, whose subtle turn in The Irishman made me wish he acted more. Like mm-hmm. I want to see more. But everyone's loving Brad Pitt this year. Uh, and if he delivers another SAG awards level acceptance speech, I'll be fine with watching him get another acceptance speech chance. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I thought Pesci was uh, the best thing in Irishman. And yep. there's a lot of good stuff in Irishman. But yeah. he, like you say, I was just like, man, where have you been, dude? Oh, God, I miss he's, him so much. He's, and he's so different to what we're normally we're, we're accustomed to yeah. from him. Um, yeah. Yeah, he, he was great. And, and uh, yeah, he's the one I'd want to win it. But yeah, Pitt's got this locked up. Uh, supporting actress will go to Laura Dern for Marriage Story. I think this will be the one where Netflix yeah. in. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm with you on that. Um, again, I think I talked about it before. It, I'd be nice to see Scarlett Johansson pick something up. Um, but I agree. I think it'd be Laura Dern. Yeah, and uh, I think, again, I, I haven't seen Jojo Rabbit, so I'm not sure. Um, I'm only going off kind of what I want from the ones that I have seen. Um, and that would probably be Laura Dern. She's yeah. really good in this. And the, again, this is another uh, credit to Baumbach because her character generally would be, and on the surface of it, is quite an unlikable right. kind of character. She's yeah. a divorce attorney. Um, but she has some great moments, especially with Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. Okay, so um, best, where do you want to go near? Best adapted screenplay? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I feel this will go to one of the films that otherwise won't get a lot of Oscars love. Uh, so maybe Jojo Rabbit, but I think maybe Little Women as well. And particularly since um, Greta Gerwig is not nominated in the directing category. Yep. So this could be her chance to pick up an award. I think you're 100% right. I think Greta Gerwig's going to win this one. And I think because they've probably got a bit of egg in their face as well about not nominating her yeah. in there. Um, yeah. But, you know, this is the thing. And I was talking to someone about this at work. They were going, ah, you know, the Greta Gerwig, a woman who's not getting nominated. I'm saying this is going to be the problem every year where you've got mm. – Five, what is it? Five director nominations and nine film category yeah, nominations. Sure. Four directors are not going to be nominated. Yeah, um, it's a shame that it's not. You know that it highlights the fact that a woman can mm. be nominated for best film but not best director. But it, there's always going to be four people missing out, and yeah. um, it's part of the annoying thing about this new, you know, broad film category. Mm. So look, uh, best screenplay, and I've got a feeling I could be wrong, but I think this is going to go to Sam Mendes and Kirsty Wilson for 1917. What I want is Bong Joon-ho to win for Parasite. Oh, wow. But I think that it will be Sam Mendes and Kirsty Wilson. Right. That's my yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah, I think there's... Yeah, I I think you're probably right. I, I kind of think it'd be fun if Knives Out was in there as well. Oh, yeah, 
because Knives Out is a real fun script, a real throwback. Yeah. Uh, but I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think 1917, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that leads me into Best Director, mm-hmm. which is, who do you think that will be? Tarantino. Do you? Um, I think it's probably Sam Mendes, actually. Yep. But I, I kind of think there's an outside chance for Tarantino. Right. I think it'll be Sam Mendes. Uh, what I want is Bong Joon-ho. But yeah, I think it'll be Sam Mendes. Yeah. Bong Joon-ho would be a mark. Oh. Like, I, I don't actually say, I, yeah. just, I don't say Quentin Tarantino because that's my pick. Yeah. Uh, but I actually think there's a, there's a, there's a small chance in my mind. Because right. that film was pretty damn well received. It and, was. Yeah. And you know what they say about Academy voters loving films about yeah. about films. That's right. So there's a chance that I'll just, mm. you know, pick him just because of that love for his recreation of... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he could, so. he could sneak it. Uh, leads me to best film, which I think will be 1917. Again, oh, what I want is Parasite. Yeah, 1917 and I want Parasite. Um, now, here's the other thing that I'll tell you, is that all of these I picked, with the exception of the screenplays, from what the individual guilds won. And the reason for this is because the... Producers Guild Award, they picked last year Green Book. Right. And no one really gave it a chance, but it won the Producers Guild Award. Right, right. And this year, what won the Producers Guild Award? 1917. Yeah. What won the Directors Guild Award? Sam Mendes. What won the Screen Actors Guild Award? Uh, Joaquin Phoenix, Renee Zellweger, Brad Pitt, and Laura Dern. So the only ones that haven't gone, and they'll be in a couple of days after we record this podcast, is the um, screenplays. And the screenplay awards... Don't include Tarantino. He didn't get nominated mm. for Writers Guild Awards. Mm. How interesting is that? So Greta Gerwig did, Sam Mendes did, Bong Joon-ho did, but Tarantino didn't. So I think we agree on all of these, yeah. uh, but having thought about it for a minute, I'm going to put my money on Tarantino's director because I feel we can't pick all the same ones. No, Franco. that's right. That's right. I mean, Look, we, we would the bragging rights go <laughs> if we, we, both, we all agreed on all our packs and we were, yeah. you know. Yeah, so we've pretty much gone with everything. So I've gone, uh, so I think best film would be 1917. Yes. Uh, best director will be Sam Mendes. Uh, Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Best actor is Joaquin Phoenix. Yes. Best actress, Renee Zellweger. Yeah. Supporting will be Brad Pitt. Supporting actress will be Laura Dern. Mm-hmm. Uh, best original screenplay, I think, will be Sam Mendes and Christy Wilson mm-hmm. for 1917. And best adapted screenplay, Greta Gerwig for Little Woman. Agreed. And I think the reason they probably won't, uh, Tarantino won't win for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is there's already one, what, how many? Two? Best screenplay? Awards, so yeah, but I'm picking him as. Uh, yeah, I think you might be right. I think there's a definitely a good outside chance shout. For yeah, sure. yeah, he could win best director. They might actually give it to him. Uh, that's what I was kind of hoping they'd do last year with uh, Spike Lee for Black Klansman. But it was just I would have loved that. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But um, definitely of the film. Um, I'm trying to think back to all the films last year, but I'm pretty certain Black Klansman was the film I wanted to win best film. Mm. I knew it wouldn't. Yeah, but that was um, the, what I felt out of, out of the ones they picked the best yeah. film of the year. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so that's our Oscar picks. Yep. Um, hey, look, so uh, there's going to be a second part to this podcast, yeah. which will be our little review of Rise of Skywalker. I know not everyone wants to hear us talk about Star Wars. Yeah. I know some of you very very much do. Yeah. So we're containing its own little Star Wars space for you. Yeah, and it's like back to tank of uh, Yeah, it's under the galaxy far, far away. Yeah. So uh, tune in for that. We'll be releasing at the same time. All right. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah. That's what I'll do for this month. Make sure you check out the Rise of Skywalker review. Yep. And uh, look, the song we're going out to this month is? Is um, by Kiwi band She Hard. It's their opening track of their debut album. Uh, the song's called Factory. And the opening is what I was talking about in the opening of this podcast. Yeah. Which is the quote from 1984. If you want a vision of the future, imagine 
a boot stamping on a human face forever. Said were the wonderful Welsh tones of uh, of Richard Burton. Um, Fabulous. So, yeah. So um, enjoy the Oscars, everyone. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Um, make sure you jump on the Facebook page and tell us your picks as well. Yep. About what you think's going to win. And uh, we will check you all next month. All right. Take care. Yes. seen in my whole life.